You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. When we get into these areas that we'll call prophecy, and we'll have a few weeks of doing prophetic passages, it's always interesting to figure out how are we going to piece these together? What is going on? So we will be in that uh, today, and that passage highlights something that is true for all of us, is that there is a gap between kind of where we are and where we know we should be. I'll just say it like that. Like, I would guess, you survey your life, you survey your heart, you survey the things you think, the things you do, the things you believe, and you might only be thinking about this in an earthly sense, but I'm just like, go, go down to like the depths of your soul. Like, there are things you know are true about you that you wish were not. And there are things that you think that you wish you wouldn't think, and there are ways that you act that you wish you wouldn't act, and there's ways your kids or your grandkids or your friends or your nieces and nephew, Tommy, in your, your case, because you brought like a truckload of kids to church today. Um, <clears throat> uh, there are ways that we operate that people see and we're like, ooh, and we know it's ugly. We know it's ugly. And we know it doesn't work right, and we know we don't want to be seen as that, but what we start to do, and this is a funny way culturally that we justify it, is what do we do? We start to compare our badness to other people's badness. And so long as our badness averages out to better than someone else's badness, then we generally feel okay. And it'll show up in phrases like this, well, at least I'm not like, or at least I don't whatever. At least I don't parent like them, or at least my kids are here, or at least we don't do this, or at least I don't say that, or at least I don't watch those. And so what happens when we realize, this is, this is like human nature, when we realize that we're not measuring up to, to what we believe we should be, we start to find people who are worse than us. And then we go, well, compared to them, I'm kind of awesome. And so then that kind of lets us sleep at night. The problem is The longer you live, the uglier you realize you become. And it's not even that, it's not even that you you get new levels of ugly, it's just that you've had more time to realize just how ugly it is and just how screwed up you actually are. And that's the problem that exists for every single person in the world. And we will spend years of our lives and thousands of our dollars to try and just numb ourselves from the realization that we are not what we want to be, that we're not who we want to be, that we don't live the way that we want to be. We will spend so much of our time doing that in order to close the gap between what we know should exist and what does exist. Now, there's an inherent problem even with that is that what you think you should be way undersells what the Lord thinks you should be. So you're like, all I want to do is just kind of smile five times a day. If I could do that, I'm doing all right. Make enough money to cover these expenses. If I could do that, I'm doing all right. And the Lord's like, there's way more. There's way more that God longs for his creation to be and to be with him than we actually dream up. And there's way more wrong with us than we actually know. And so was the problem that we have in the book of Isaiah. Many of you probably have not read Isaiah all the way through, or when you do, it's like Isaiah, you're just kind of like, 
I don't even know what this is about. Like, what's, and that's the problem when we read prophecy, right? We read it and we're like, who? Who's that person? What are they doing? I don't even get it. I was talking with a friend about Ezekiel. Like, Ezekiel's like, good luck. You read Ezekiel and you don't even know, like, <clears throat> why are you building another temple? I don't even know why you're building another temple. And your wife's gonna die, but you can't be sad? Like, what, what's up with you, Ezekiel? And you read Jeremiah, like you read these prophets and like you heard John say last week, major and minor prophets have nothing to do with their content. It has everything to do with their length. <clears throat> and so Amos isn't a minor prophet. He's just a shorter prophet, which is smart because he, he could say less with more or more with less. But we get into Isaiah and Isaiah is sometimes some people call it like the fifth gospel. <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But then you have Isaiah. And Isaiah is a beautiful book, but so often we don't know how to engage it. We don't know what to interpret and how to interpret it and what's going on. In fact, some people would even say, they would say, oh, there's like two Isaiahs, because if you, if you end chapter 39 and you get into chapter 40, the tone changes drastically. But I would say, and others might say, that it's because Isaiah's writing to a different group of people in chapter 40. And so an easy way to remember Isaiah, <clears throat> if you want to remember how it breaks down, is like this. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. How many books of the Bible are there? Anybody know? 66, right. And there are how many books in the Old Testament? Who Bible, Bible kind of trivia nerds know that. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39, there you go. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah have a specific tone to them. And then the following 27, how many books are in the New Testament? 27, the following 27, I don't, like, like again, chapter divisions aren't from the Lord, but it's kind of nice that it helps us here. <clears throat> so there's no one like God was like, now you will have chapter divisions, because in fact, we're gonna read in today's passage an unfortunate chapter division where they took the, like, a servant song and they put the beginning of it in chapter 52 and then gave the rest of it to chapter 53. So verse divisions aren't from the God. They weren't like, here you go, but they help us. And it just so happens that the first 39 chapters of Isaiah have a specific tone and the next 27 have a specific tone. And <clears throat> we have a Bible that has 66 books, 37, or 39, 39 and 27. So for what it's worth, if that ever helps you, you now probably know more about Isaiah than most Christians, just by knowing that. So I'll give you a couple of things about Isaiah and we'll keep going. First, Isaiah was a prophet to Judah. Remember, <clears throat> there was a division and there were 10 kingdoms or 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. And the north was called Israel and the south was called Judah. Isaiah was a prophet to Judah after the kingdom had been divided into north and south. His prophecies were written for about a 40-year period of time. I'm taking this from John Oswald, who's like my favorite Isaiah scholar, sharp dude. And you can actually go online and read and like watch his, he has something like 30 lectures on Isaiah. They're about an hour each. <clears throat> so when I'm sermon prepping, guess who's watching John Oswald a ton? Me. So he goes from about 740 to 700 BC, Isaiah is writing these prophecies. <clears throat> and then what we have going on here is that the Assyrian nation, now Assyria takes the northern kingdom. Babylon takes the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom lasts longer chronologically than the northern kingdom. So by 722 BC, the northern kingdom's gone. So that's happening during Isaiah's prophesying life. Then 
the southern kingdom, Judah, has up until uh, 586, they make, it, they make it over another 100 years before the Babylonian captivity, Assyria kind of falls as a superpower. Babylon comes up on the scene and they take the southern kingdom. So Isaiah's prophesying during a time when a new nation is rising to power. <clears throat> and then we'll get into future prophecies coming where there's another power showing up. And then we'll get even into Ezra and a new power shows up. And like Cyrus is there, and now we have a whole new group. So we're having different superpowers showing up in the region as this goes. And I just want to give you a brief outline of Isaiah. Um, and this is like, again, super brief. Because John Oswald would say this, like the theme of, the theme of Isaiah is service. And so he breaks it down to the first five chapters are kind of an introduction. <clears throat> and then in chapter six, the Lord calls Isaiah he calls Isaiah into his service. And that's the passage where he's like, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and uh, the train of his garment filled the place and these angels are covering their eyes but they're still flying, they're crying holy, holy, holy. Like, it's a pretty famous Isaiah passage, Isaiah chapter six. So he calls the men and then from seven to 39, the Lord is speaking specific prophecies to what is going on in that time and he's showing his faithfulness to his people. And, and as um, Oswald would say, it's the basis for servanthood. Why should Israel be a servant in the first 30, or seven through 39? Because this theme of service really starts with Israel. You should be my servant to the nations. So he's talking about how the nation should be this, <clears throat> but the nation is not that. When you flip it to 40, it seems like the time period changes, and it's as if Isaiah's writing to people who will return. And so they will return from exile. So they're gonna go into exile, the first 39, and then they're gonna come back from exile after that. And in this chunk, really 40 through 55, you're gonna see a specific change that goes on in Isaiah where he starts to go, I want you to be my servant. The Lord is saying, I want Israel to be my servant, but you're not able to do it. <clears throat> you can't do it faithfully. So I will provide the way for you to become the servant, but it happens through my singular servant. That's the passage, one of the passages that we read or that we recited today, Isaiah 53, five and six is talking about this servant. And so there are several in uh, 49 onward, I'm sorry, chapter 40 onward, there are several servant passages. And the one that is probably the most famous for us is Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53. And that is, some might call it the suffering servant. So it's no longer talking about the nation, <clears throat> which is what you would assume. Like, hey, I, I need you to serve, and so I'm gonna write to you how to serve, but then God goes, no, 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 I'm gonna provide the way for you to become the servants that I need by also providing for you a capital S servant who will die for you, who will be for you what you need, who will provide the right relationship that you were unable to have. And so we're gonna read through Isaiah 52, 13, through 53, 12, and we're gonna see essentially this, that God's servant gives new life. That's what God's servant does. God's servant gives new life and gives new life to God's people. 
So that's why I say it's an unfortunate division because actually this servant passage, and everyone would agree, starts in 52.13. And then 53 just kind of shows up right in the middle, or right after the first third. So this is what we'll have. Behold, my servant, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The only time you really see the phrase high and lifted up in the book of Isaiah is in reference to God. So just note that. Like high and lifted up doesn't just show up all the time. Right? Remember Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. So interesting phrasing to use for the servant to be high and lifted up. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. The first three verses, and this whole passage is just three verses, three verses, three verses, three verses, three verses. It's really nice to kind of preach, because you're like, oh, the first three, the next three, the next three, the next three. So in the first three verses, we see this servant come on the scene, and the servant is going to be exalted. Someone comes in, and he is, uh, as many people look at him, they're like, what in the world? Who is this guy? But he shows up on the scene in the first three verses, and he is high and lifted up. But then interestingly, the servant grows up. So in the next three verses, the servant is going to start growing up, and there's this idea that exists within Isaiah of the strong arm of the Lord, right, which I don't have, it's not busting out of here, but just pretend I'm okay? The strong arm of the Lord, which is that idea of God being mighty, God being powerful, God having strength, God saving. So the strong arm of the Lord, you'll see... But then we get to the next three verses, and as the servant shows up on the scene, he's small and becomes larger, and he's unattractive, which is an interesting line to put in there. So starting in 53, who has believed what he has heard from us, and who has the arm, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant. So not starting with strength, right? Like young plants are weak. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So the servant is exalted, and then as the servant grows up in life, the servant goes kind of unnoticed. Small plant, just like a small plant grows up, he grows up like a root from the dry ground. He had no form that people should look to him. Nothing. Now, this is hard because I'm always going to be jumping to Jesus because clearly, like, you know, spoiler alert, I think this is Jesus. In case you didn't know that, I'm sorry if you wanted to wait for the end scene of the credits, but, like, seems like Jesus to me. 
But it's interesting that when you're talking about the Lord and his might and his power, that this servant comes on and is actually said in Isaiah, not attractive. Now, how many of our pictures show Jesus as attractive? All of them try to make him attractive and white with blue eyes. And you're like, nope. I'll have to share with you guys, I'm sorry I didn't prepare for this, but like, I believe it was popular science actually did the reconstruction of a Middle Eastern man around the time that Jesus would have been on the earth. And he looked aloof, and like, you're just kind of like, who's that guy? I'm probably taller than Jesus, which, you know, got that on him. Just kidding. I'm just kidding, guys. But like, he was a short guy. That's what they say, like the bone structure of Middle Eastern men, they weren't tall people. And so they reconstructed, I'll have to share it, I'll share it with you, you can put it on Facebook, but like, um, <clears throat> he's just this guy in the, in, the, in the cover of the magazine, he's just kind of staring off into nothing. And what we love to think of like, Jesus is everything, and everything also including like attractive. And here's the thing, it's so funny how the Lord knows how we like to be associated with good looking people. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> There's only one answer, Brad. That's right. <clears throat> Amen. Yeah. But how, how much we look for it. And that like, when the Savior, the servant, was coming into this world, he had no physical trait that would make you want to be near him. There was nothing about him that made you want to identify with him. Now, it's interesting because you hear about Jesus. First, there's no statements about how Jesus looked. But second, people marvel at his teaching. Isn't that interesting? He teaches as one with authority, not like our scribes. That the thing that attracted people to Jesus was how he taught and how he lived, not how he looked. And it's just interesting that God, in his abundant wisdom, when sending the servant to the Savior into the world, assured that there would be no reason to buddy up next to him except for who he was, what he said, and what he did. And in a culture that is so consumed with vanity and beauty, I think there's a lot that even we can remember and hold to about even just that. So this servant grows up and is unnoticed and is despised and is rejected and is acquainted with our grief. And these are things that you don't expect like a rock star to do. We have these ideas that as you ascend the corporate ladder, you become less and less concerned about what's going on down below you, right? Like you need to focus on really important things. I get it. And with the Lord, the creator of the world, he's acquainted with every one of us. That in his power and in his might and in his majesty, Isaiah prophesies that this servant is going to be well acquainted with our grief, that he understands sorrow. It's an interesting thing to put in the passage. Like, he was despised and rejected, he was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. And men would hide their faces from him, which is interesting because remember when Jesus was crucified, where did the disciples go? Anywhere but by him. Right? Like, I'm out, I'm out. I don't even know who Jesus is. 
And we esteemed him not. That there was no that there was no reason to have him be esteemed. So as he was being despised and rejected, we esteemed him not. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John in chapter one, it says he came to his own people and his own people did not recognize him, did not know him. He was despised, he was rejected, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah talking to the nation about how they treat this servant and they don't even recognize who the servant is. So the servant is acquainted with grief. And it's just funny because grief is such a common part of how we live. The people who are like, everything's fine, I'm like, you're lying. You're lying. There's always something wrong. There's always something broken. There's always something hurting. So the servant goes unnoticed, lives, but then the servant dies. For guilty people, and that's gonna be four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, kind of the next two, three verse sections read like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Where did he carry him? Yet we esteemed him, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So while he was carrying our sorrows, we looked at that and we're like, God must not like him. This is our memory verse. But he was pierced, I'll read the ESV because I think that's what I put in there. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And we are healed by his wounds or with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So there's this phrase that you might be familiar with, might not, it's called atonement. And atonement, people like to, it, it's just not how you do word studies, but it, it works. You know, they just go, it's like at one mint, which is not really what it means because atone doesn't mean at one, but it's just what we say. So it's the way in which God makes things right, by the way, the, the best way to kind of understand it. The way God makes us right with him, right? To atone, to cover over. You ever seen the movie Atonement? It's interesting because that whole thing is about like, how can I make this right? It has nothing to do with God, but it just has to do with that feeling of like, I gotta make it right. You ever felt that way? Yeah, kids usually feel that way when one gets caught. What can I do? I'll do anything, anything at all. What do you need? Don't tell mom, don't tell dad, don't tell grandma, like whatever it is. I just, what do I need to do to make it right? Well, the problem is the nation was carrying an abundance of sin and disobedience and there was no one thing that they could do to make it right. <clears throat> what happens is the servant comes and the servant takes all of the punishment and the service takes, servant takes all of the affliction and all of the wounds that were needed because of the disobedience of the people that everybody in the nation had wandered from the Lord. And the Lord then put upon the servant the iniquity, the sin, the disobedience of the nation. For those of us who live in a world where we're really used to people uh, being transactional. You do something good for me, I do something good for you. You work hard, you get paid. You don't work hard, you lose your job. 
This is the opposite of any understanding of transaction that we have in life. Because the phrase goes, we all like sheep have gone astray. We all have turned to our own ways, but the Lord has punished him for what we've done. The Lord has punished him for what we've done. Every disobedience and every sin is punished. But the servant carried the punishment in his own body. We see further after this idea of making one and being punished, this judgment that was placed upon the servant in verses seven, eight, and nine. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Remember Jesus on trial? He's like, hey, are you this guy? And he's like, you're saying it. He doesn't even defend himself because he knows what he's there to do. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers, those who are cutting the wool off, is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he, the servant, was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, They made his grave with wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So now, in these next three verses, the servant is now dead. So the servant is announced in the first three, grows up unnoticed in the next three, then after that is dying for the people in the following three. Now he is dead in the fourth triplet, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Now there's varying views on what in the world is going on here and how this breaks itself out. But it's interesting that there was a rich man named Joseph Arimathea who took Jesus' body and was like, I have a new tomb that I could put him in. So there was a rich man who took Jesus' body and buried him. Buried amongst the rich. But when Jesus died, who was on either side? Criminals. Made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. That's how I look at that and go, interesting. Did Isaiah, now remember, we're 740 to 700 BC. Isaiah's writing these things. I mean, I'll even, if you're like, "Ah, I don't believe that, right? Isaiah was made by like 700 people over there. Like, fine. Then say Isaiah was written in 100 BC. Say Isaiah was written in 50 BC or 30 BC. Pick one, pick a date in which this could be that precise other than somebody staring at the events. Like, so just pick a date. If you don't wanna buy the date I gave you, that's fine, do your own research, but you're not gonna be like, you're not gonna find somebody who's like, well, I think Isaiah wrote it as he was staring at Jesus' body. He's not a contemporary with Jesus. And yet time and time again, we are seeing the servant and what the servant is doing. And now, right, comes on the scene, grows up unnoticed, 
man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, dies for the people, now is put into a grave, and yet though judged, says nothing, does not defend himself. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. He willingly dies. 10, 11, and 12, a couple of interesting things happen that will hopefully make our brain misfire a little bit because they have to, they give us verses that we have to figure out what to do with. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. That's an interesting verse. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Which means that it was the desire of God for this to happen, for the servant to die. That there was not another way for the people to be made right. This was God's decree. This is what God spoke. It was in God's mind. And we can read in the New Testament that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was something that was known before the foundation of the earth. So then it would make sense to even read in Isaiah that this is something that God is working out. It is only something that God could have dreamed up. How do we make this thing right? But it doesn't end there because if you just end with the crushing of the servant, you have a rather sad story. Now there's just somebody dead. But there's not just somebody dead. It's interesting how suddenly the servant comes back to life. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, using offering language that you would expect in the Old Testament, so when he is making an offering for the guilt of the people, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. So what I'm thinking is going on here is that this servant recognizes the eternal reward for this suffering. You see the offspring, all of those who are made right by the activity of the servant. And he shall prolong his days. Some would say that refers directly to the resurrection. That his days are prolonged, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Nothing can prosper in a dead man's hand. So now, in talking about the servant, the will of the Lord is prospering. So something happened between verse 9 and verse 10, the, those are the last three and the, fi- the final three verses, where this servant is now back on the scene. No more grave, no more tomb. Now the will of the Lord is prospering in his hand. Hmm. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many account, many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Again, between 740 and 700 BC, what's going on? Isaiah is writing about how God is gonna make the people right. And we have it. Therefore, 
I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes, notice verb tense, not made, and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the servant comes, servant grows, servant died, servant buried, servant's back. And he's making many righteous. And he's interceding for transgressors. He makes many clean. Since I already gave you the spoiler alert, I don't think it's hard for you to realize how when I read this, I have no other place to go than to realize that God's servant is Jesus. And I know that people who might not follow after Jesus will look at this and define this passage differently because you have to. It's too precise. You have to go, no, clearly that's someone else. I'm like, I'm not sure who. I'm not sure who else this could be. Because you just think about the life of Jesus. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, what you will have in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not as much John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll have this story of Jesus' birth and a little bit of the beginning of his life. Then, all of a sudden, Jesus is like 30, and he's starting stuff. He's doing his ministry. And you look at the, right, you start in 53, one, two, and three, and you're like, here's this, this little plant growing up out of the ground, unnoticed and unrecognized. We have these statements of his birth, and then we just, he just starts his ministry. And we have, Nothing in the in-between. Why? Because there was nothing spectacular about him. Mary knew what was up. But it wasn't as if people were sitting around going, let's just record everything this guy does. Like, you know, three o'clock, went to the bathroom. Five o'clock, ate dinner. Like, he's just doing his life. And then when it was time, there he goes. And he steps in. Jesus suffered for us. I mean, the gospel message as clearly as you can put it is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He died for us according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Well, when the apostle Paul in the New Testament is writing that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I would guess he's going back to Isaiah where he's clearly realizing that there was a servant who died to make many righteous. Christ died for us according to the scriptures. Jesus came and took our judgment and our condemnation. He took it all. He didn't leave one behind. You know, like when you're cleaning and you're like, oh, shoot, I missed that. He didn't do that. I was like, I thought I had most of your sins covered. 99% of you can come into heaven. The 1% has to stay behind and go to hell. That's not how it worked. He covered everything and through faith in Jesus many are made righteous and the cool thing is this think about when Isaiah was written and to whom Isaiah knew the disobedience of the nation 
He knew there was nothing that they could do to make themselves right. They were a lost cause. And we, outside of the Lord, are a lost cause. And yet, what does the Lord do? Through faith in Jesus, we are made right. He exchanged punishment for life. And through him, we can be made right. He makes many righteous. So when we think about that gap that exists between whatever and whatever, let Isaiah 52, let Isaiah 53 fill that in. How do I get from where I know I am, which is not where I want to be, to beyond where I want to be and where the Lord wants me? First, to trust Trust Jesus' work to make you righteous. Now the thing is this, to trust Jesus' work to make you righteous, you actually have to say, nothing I've done matters, which is really hard for us to say. Nothing I've done matters, nothing that I've said matters, no way that I've lived has been good enough, no amount of good behavior. Like That's one of the hardest things for an American to say, isn't it? I've done nothing of worth. So go, wait a second. I've done some things, right? I mean, I'm okay. Nope, you're not. You're not. The only way for it to happen, even spoken by Isaiah, how will we be made right? And then how can we be a servant to the world? And how can others know about the goodness of our God? By God making his people right with him. Because time and time again, I mean, there isn't a time, you read Old Testament or New, there isn't a time where God's people's like, we got this thing licked. We know the following God thing, we got it down. It takes no time once the church begins for Ananias and Sapphira to be like, let's lie about our money. <clears throat> let's do that. That seems like a smart move. Nope. I mean, you make it like three chapters. Everyone's sharing and giving, and then now people are dying because they're lying again. Like, it's just what happens. So our first movement is to trust Jesus' work to make us right, to close the gap, to do the things that we can or else the rest of your life you're going to be spent, it's going to be spent trying time and time again to make yourself feel better for who you are. And your best bet, your best bet is that you can numb it. You can just forget about it You don't have to think about it. Surround yourself with people who are worse than you so you always feel superior to them, like whatever it might be. Your best bet is to just kind of stave off that feeling of dread that you get when you're lying in bed at night and you know you're not who you want to be. So to remove that, it's just by putting our confidence in the Lord and realizing that he's done the work. For those in this church who have done that, and many have, I think then the charge for us is to be that servant to the world and to point them to the true servant. To live lives not of our own merit, but of the Lord's, not in our own strength, but of God's. To not speak about what we've done and how we've done it so well, but to speak about what the Lord's done and what the Lord has done in us. And it will be weird, and people will laugh, and they'll go, I don't know, you're kind of a, you're funky. You're like, I am. I am, there's really nothing good in me. The Lord did it. The Lord did it. 
like, oh, I don't want to ruin my witness. I'm like, that is your witness. I'm not going to ruin your witness. You're going to declare it. Like, your witness is, I've done nothing good. Jesus has. Like, that's all you got. <clears throat> so try something else, you know, like, I, I don't know. I'm just trying, I'm, I'm waiting to spring Jesus on him. Like, that's not going to work. All right, like, what are you going to do in the meantime? Like, look like you're a good person because you're not. You don't have anything else. You have one card to play, Jesus. <laughs> so you just play it. You don't try to like sneak it up like a magician. Like, Ooh, yeah, surprise, I'm a Christian. What? I thought you were crazy. Like, I don't know. <clears throat> we are who we are. We are who we are. Saved by God's grace. Made right. So for those who are longing to be made right, trust in the work of Jesus. Let go of what you have done. And for those who have been made right, point people to the way they can as well. It's the commandment, the commission that we have been given. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. What are we declaring? Not that we have it together, but that the Lord's done it. And bring good news. Good news. You can be right. You don't have to feel that way. You don't have to think those things. You don't have to live that way. Jesus came, and he can make you right.